The New Frontiers in Functional Medicine podcast is proudly sponsored by Designs for Health. Designs for Health is a family-owned professional brand offered exclusively to healthcare professionals and their patients. For over 25 years, they have been the healthcare professional's trusted source for research-backed nutritional products. Their guiding philosophy, science first, is demonstrated by a commitment to research-driven products, synergistic formulations, and meaningful quantities of therapeutic ingredients. Find them at www.designsforhealth.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. Today, we're going to talk about uh, all things practice building. So either you're a new clinician uh, creating your first functional medicine practice, or you are a uh, conventionally trained doc just jumping into functional medicine. You know, what do you do? How do you make it work? We have got one of the world's experts in this arena on the podcast today. Um, I'll be talking to Dr. Dan Kalish. Uh, Dr. Kalish has literally educated thousands of folks uh, in, in making the transition to a successful, thriving, uh, stress-limited practice. Uh, he's dedicated to teaching doctors of functional medicine philosophy and practices. Uh, through the Kalish Institute's educational programs, he has trained over 1,000 practitioners worldwide in the Kalish method, which solves patient challenges through a proven lab-based approach. Recently, a research study published by two Mayo Clinic researchers confirmed the efficacy of the Kalish method, showing significant improvements in GI health and quality of life in the study participants. I have this paper for you. It'll be on Dan's podcast page uh, as a PDF that you can download. Uh, it really is quite an exciting study. Dr. Kalish studied at the University of London and conducted research with biochemist Dr. Robin Monroe at Cambridge University. His studies led him to mentoring with renowned psychiatrist R.D. Lang, uh, as well as with John R. Lee, M.D., a pioneer in the use of progesterone, and to teaching collaborations with leading endocrinologist Dana Schwartzbein. Uh, Dr. Kalish is also the author of three books, including The Five Pillars to Building a Successful Practice, The Kalish Method, Healing the Body, Mapping the Mind, and Your Guide to Healthy Hormones. Uh, Dr. Kalish is a frequently respected, re requested speaker for integrative medicine conferences across the United States. I, I've had the honor to, um, I, I've actually been chatting with you quite a bit lately, Dan, and I appreciate the amount of time and energy you've put into building this really wonderful uh, resource for clinicians transitioning into functional medicine. So thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, I'm so glad to be here and help spread the word. Absolutely. So let's get right to it. Uh, a clinician is transitioning to functional medicine from a standard medical practice. I'm, I, I'm seeing this as an IFM faculty. We're putting a lot of attention around to building these support bridges. Uh, any advice for making this big, often scary leap into making a functional medicine practice work? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that we see, and, we, and we, a lot of doctors are just starting this transition when they sign up for my various training programs. So this is probably the most common situation that we're in when we're working with doctors. And I think um, the universal, uh, uh, what would you call it, kind of gestalt of this, right? The universal mm -hmm. big picture of this is that the person has just complete fear, concern, about losing everything and that it's not going to work and it's going to fail and they just don't see how all these pieces are going to fit together. And people are just sort of frozen like a deer in the headlights moment where they know they have to do this. Mm -hmm. Every fiber of their soul is screaming to them, you can't keep going in this conventional medical situation because you know you're not helping people in the way that you want to or at the depth of the level that you want to. But then this is like this promised land somewhere over there, which is successful functional medicine land, you know, and making that leap, it, it, it's almost impossible for people to do without some kind of really significant support. And so I'm like the guy on the other side of the shore saying, hey, over here, happy functional medicine land, you can do it. We've trained a thousand people to do this. I know what you're going through, you know, and, and to just kind of be that beacon of hope that to say, hey, you know, 
you will fail if you don't get some help because this is a really hard thing to figure out. But there's predictable places that people fall apart. We'll tell you what they all are. I mean, you and I can talk about these today as much as we can and just give that sense of encouragement that, hey, you know what? You can totally do this. If you get through medical school, you can handle this one too, you know? Um, it's just a big unknown. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I, I, I do encounter it uh, routinely and... Um you know, again, we're doing our best in the functional medicine space to help bridge it. Give me a couple of the predictable places you see this breakdown. Yeah, I mean, the first and initial issue is that people don't create a plan ahead of time that they then execute. So it's very vague, you know. They know what they're doing in their current medical practice, but what they're trying to create is sort of based probably on an amalgam of the various teachers that they've studied with and looking at their practices and seeing yeah. how they work. Right. But the, but you, you can't do that. That would be like, if you think about it, it's like opening a restaurant, right? If you're driving around the, well, let's say we were talking about New York earlier. Say you're in New York and you go visit 20 restaurants and then you want to open your rest own restaurant, but you don't create a menu. You don't create, a, you know, you don't hire chefs. You don't, you know, you just have in your mind this idea of a restaurant, and then you rent a space, and then you kind of try to figure it out as you go. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that restaurant would fail, right? So we want to have people planning out everything that they're doing, every service they're going to offer, every type of patient they want to try to attract, how their marketing is going to work, how their sales process is going to work. Uh, you know, everything has to be laid out in a plan, obviously, and then you can execute to that plan. But we see very few doctors that have uh, a detailed business plan as they're starting their business and so they're right off the bat they're starting from kind of behind the they're starting from a place that's almost it's just going to make it harder than it needs to be yeah that's a great analogy using the restaurant idea so i you know i love organic but i want a little japanese food in there and i'm going to throw some chinese and maybe we'll do some italian because you're being because anybody who's who's going through the functional medicine training they're being exposed to a lot of different um clinicians with uh, various areas of expertise, and all of us are, you know, sort of birthing our practice model in, in different ways, and so if you're grabbing a little bit of all of that, I could see it would be extremely uh, overwhelming. So I'm, an, I'm imagining that part of this work is establishing your niche, you know, es establishing your menu, as it were. And oh, absolutely, yeah. So how do you, how would you, any, any kind of pointers to developing that? Yeah, so it's a little counterintuitive because, you know, within functional medicine, you know, on the clinical side, we know everything causes everything else, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't really just pick one thing and just say, I'm going to specialize in gluten-free diets because you know that that drags in autoimmune and it probably is going to influence gut pathogens, right? So clinically, it's kind of a mess to try to sort this out. But for, if you look at it, in other words, you know, if you try to say, I'm going to create a niche within functional medicine, like I'm just going to run food allergy tests or something like that, would, that would be doomed to fail, right? But you can look at the niche from the way that the customer, the patient, looks at it. Because we're always looking at things the way the clinician or doctor would see them. Mm -hmm. And we really rarely put ourselves in the patient's shoes. So patients really don't care too much about what labs you use or what techniques you use. They certainly don't care about supplement companies or anything like that, they're just interested in a, in, a, in a certain benefit and receiving a benefit from what the doctor is offering. And so the niche has to be 100% patient-centered, meaning that, you know, the person who's never been to a functional medicine seminar knows nothing about it, just has a complaint, you know, how is that going to work? So I'll just give you some examples, some great ones and some wacky ones just to get people's thinking going. So one of the greatest first niches I ever saw, this was one of my students 10, 15 years ago. He took my training program, this is a true story, and he decided to create a niche around what his problem was that we cured during the training program, which was H. pylori. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, that is a dumb idea. I mean, honestly, I didn't see anything, but I was like, that's a pretty dumb idea. Like, how could you, and you know what? He was he had a booked practice in like two or three months because it turns out there's a lot of people that have H. pylori that aren't getting the problem solved. Jeez. And it was a brilliant niche. And that kind of taught me, okay, it can be a really narrow niche. It wasn't even GI, right? It was just right. H. pylori. That was it. Crazy niche. I love this one. Another student of mine in New York City. Again, I thought this was ridiculous, but it worked beautifully for him. He worked, uh, he created a niche 
just working with women who are about to get married. Really? What a wonderful idea. Apparently, there are a lot of women in New York City that are about to get married. And what are they? They're highly motivated to look their best, Mm -hmm. to fit into their dress. And you have a six-month or a year-long window. Will they do anything you say to make themselves beautiful and sexually um, active, you know, high sex drive during their wedding? period of time so that was a that's an example of kind of a crazy silly niche Mm -hmm. so it could be something narrow i mean common ones obviously would be like working with pregnant women working with kids working with the elderly working with professional athletes working with hashimoto's patients only working with uh you know chronic long-term gi problems only so you know you can you can dish it out in in a variety of different ways depending on I think the most important thing is where your passion is and what you're the most interested in because that will come across to the patients that you're marketing to. Well, and I'm assuming that once you leap in and you've designed your initial marketing plan around that narrow focus, that it's going to naturally broaden. Is that true, would you say? Or do people maintain that? I mean, is that is that guy still addressing H. pylori only after 15 years in practice? Or <laughs> it, it depends on your. It depends on the doctor. Now, a lot of us would get bored if we just did H. pylori every day because we are, our personalities are stimulated by complexity, by problem solving, by learning new things. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think there's different sort of personality types. Other doctors are just as happy to pick as narrow a niche as they can, mm-hmm. uh, let's say uh, fertility, and just work with fertility patients for you know a 20, 30-year period of time. So I think the answer to that question is more dependent on what the doctor's interest level is in terms of more stimulating, more informative, you know, new learning, new, right. new protocols and that kind of thing versus just doing the same thing over and over again. Now, from a business perspective, if you're interested in making money, then obviously the sticking to the narrower niche is better. But mm-hmm. if you lose your passion for it, what's the point, right? Because we're not doing any of these things in order to, you know, for the sake of money. We're doing this so that we can be delivering the services that we want to as healers. And so I think you, really we see that the doctors are always successful if they stay true to what their purpose is and what their intentions are in terms of, you know, bigger things, like what their life goals are, really. Why are they here? Why are they on the planet in the first place? And, yes. Um, for somebody that might not be to stay in a narrow niche, it might be like you said, maybe you start with pediatrics and then you broaden it out to adults with ADD and ADHD also or something like that. You know? Right, right, right. Well, and certainly if you, I, I, I can see that. I, I mean, I really, you've brought up some wonderful points. So just what is your inner guidance? You know, what is your purpose moving through that? Um, having a clear definition, a clear vision, a very clear plan. And then if you do want to expand, like many of us are interested in doing, because functional medicine really is systems medicine at the end of the day, you know, you can do that once you've established yourself. I mean, it seems to me it would be pretty easy if you've got a bunch of H. pylori patients. They're all going to, you know, they're all going to probably have some degree of of, of allergies or food sensitivities because they're not digesting well. You know, they're probably a bit hypochlorhydric, and it would be fairly straightforward to expand that that space. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, but here's the thing with the niche, like H. pylori mm, or like uh, mm. fertility, is that what, that's just what brings the customer in. Yes. Once they're in, then, you know, the doctor is going to say, hey, you know, you have this H. pylori program. We already know that. Your previous doctor has the testing. But let me tell you how this really works. If we don't clean up your diet and get the inflammatory foods out, we're not going to be able to treat the H. pylori. This H. pylori problems cause all kinds of toxicity issues with your liver. We've got to test and correct your liver. Whoops, there's probably a lot of food allergies, you know. Mm-hmm. So that what brings that person in, that one thing that brings them in your door, you're still then able to execute on all the functional medicine labs and workups that you would want. So, Because it obviously won't work just to treat H. pylori yes. in isolation, right? That, that, that would be an unsuccessful practice. Yeah, absolutely. So you're automatically moving into systems, but you've got a funnel. So you enter at the narrow end, and 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 then you expand into a systems approach from there. Is that what you you're saying? You have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the beauty of it. Because that's why I was saying there's this dichotomy. Because you and I are thinking systems approach, and the idea of having a niche just seems ridiculous. Because we know that even for everyone with H. pylori or for everyone with Hashimoto's, 
we're going to have to go through all the systems. Yes. But if we, if we market ourselves as systems biology-oriented functional medicine clinicians and you actually say what's going on, then patients immediately get lost. They can't relate to that. Yes. But they relate to the pain of H. pylori or the pain of not being able to have a child. Yes. So that's why I'm saying we kind of want to speak their language to bring them in. But once they're in, we're, our plan is going to be to do a full battery of functional medicine workups and treatments, yes. even in, within a niche. Okay, that makes that makes really great sense, and it also feels infinitely less overwhelming than you know what I would imagine a lot of new clinicians are thinking. I need to market that I'm practicing systems medicine. That's entirely daunting. That's daunting for the physician. That's daunting for whoever's going to be receiving their, you know, their their media or reading their advertisements. Yeah, it's too much, and. Well, let me, so let me just talk to you about that a little bit, and then we're going to talk about some specific approaches to patient care um, that you recommend. But what about, so marketing is a huge deal, marketing locally, doing print ads, um, you know, getting active in social media, doing Facebook, blogging, and on and on and on and on. I mean, it's a big, big world. So what, how are you guiding folks in the marketing arena? So that one, and this is why I do a lot of one-on-one coaching, you know. I was thinking about this before our call. Like, I'm the one that actually has coached a thousand people myself. Like, there's no assistant teacher person here. Like, I'm, like, interacted with each one of these doctors. And I'll tell you one thing is that the way that each there's, – there's no way you could do a generic marketing plan because some doctors love to write, and they're good writers – there's a blog in your future. Some of them are just charismatic. You put a camera in front of them, and they just light up. You know, they're like George Clooney or Julia Roberts or something on camera, and mm-hmm. there's your video blog kind of YouTube posting kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are great in person. They love to speak to groups, and then we get them doing, you know, local seminars, you know, to patients about given subjects that are within their niche. So really try to focus on what's going to be an enjoyable activity for the doctor to do because – no matter what it is, whether you're posting YouTube videos or you're doing a blog or you're going around doing talks, if you're consistent and every week you put three, four hours into your marketing efforts over the course of 12 or 18 months, you're going to build up a following. Yeah. And then that will start to take its own, uh, you know, create its own momentum. But what happens 99% of the time is the doctor learns about social media, they hire a social media person, but they just don't like to write. It's just not their thing to be posting, you know, these Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram things. You know, it's just not genuine to them, and so it doesn't work. But then, again, you put them in a room with 25 people at some yoga studio that's, you know, talking about female hormones, and then they just get five or six patients to sign up just because they're really good in person. Um, But the idea is that, you know, with marketing, it's, it's, it's way simpler than people think. You don't have to spend a lot of money on this either. It's just the consistency of the message over time that within 12 to 18 months consistently pays off. You know, and it doesn't take more than a couple hours a week. It's not a huge time commitment for the doctor either. And it doesn't help to throw a lot of money at it. It really, most of this is, you know, each one of us as a practitioner really is our own brand. Mm -hmm. So like the Kalish Institute, I mean, it was pretty obvious, right? Kalish is me, it's my name. My teaching is me. I'm the brand that I'm selling. And for a doctor in practice, you know, Dr. Jones, her brand is her personality and how she is perceived by the people in her community. Mm. And so she needs to just jump in and express that. Um, and, and you said consistent and, and also that it takes time. I mean, that's certainly been my experience, you know, just plugging along, putting the content out there. I have, ha- I have a lot of interesting newsletters come in my box. I mean, some of them are from the integrative space, but since I'm a bit of a science geek, I have you know, newsletters from various labs that throw out um, new research and so forth. And I just kind of keep my eyes open for that. And, 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 you know, a lot of those will turn into posts and um, maybe we'll make them long enough, a couple paragraphs long, so that we, we've anchored it to the website. And I just, I, I've seen it. You know, I, I worked behind the scenes for most of my career. I have a, I've always had a clinical practice, but I, I, I hadn't directed my attention to my own sort of brand building, as you say, until the last couple of years. And, and you know, how you're 
how you're articulating it has been true in my experience. I've, you just have to keep doing it and keep doing it, you know, reasonably consistently and within a structure that is doable, you know, not biting off more than I can chew. Yeah, and that it, I mean, it's the same probably for all aspects of life in general. Is these simple truths are just what they are. They're mm-hmm. simple truths, and they're and they're universal, right? It's not like YouTube is biased towards you know people who are in Nebraska, you know, or is promoting people who are in Chicago, or you know, it's 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 almost like there's a formula we just need to follow, and if you can stick with the script, then this you know predictable result will occur. Right. Right. And so the, the larger, you know, Internet social media space is, is pretty obvious. There's, there's Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and so forth and YouTube. But what about, and locally you mentioned um, giving talks. Anything else about local marketing? Anything, in, in, any other way people might reach out locally? Well, you know, a lot of the things that you would think of as, in terms of marketing are pretty extensive, whether it's print ads, newspaper, magazines, um, whether it's, you know, TV spots, having a little radio show or TV show. And most of the doctors that are starting out, it really doesn't, it doesn't accelerate the growth of the practice to spend, you know, five to ten grand a month in, in marketing. But, you know, uh, what works 100% of the time, in my experience, is that if you just start doing public talks, it could be at the local Whole Foods, yoga studio, massage school, women's groups, um, you know, some people are, corporations, there's always groups that are looking for hour-long lunch talks. Mm-hmm. We even have some doctors that do a, a paid version of that where they pay a fee, a pretty reasonable fee, and then uh, the company will, this company, marketing company will gather like 30 people together for a, a dinner slash talk, you know, where you can pitch your services. So there's, you know, really affordable ways to do that. And if you're, we find that also, you know, if the patient sees you in person and is able to ask you questions and kind of gets a really um, solid sense of who you are as a person, that almost free sells them on coming in to your practice, either right away or when they eventually, you know, have a problem where they need you. Um, So I think that in-person presence and having a circuit, you know, where you go around when I was in San Diego for many years, I had a circuit. I did a community college talk twice a year. I had a women's group. I had a church group. I had a yoga school. I had a massage school. And uh, um, this, like, alternative colitis Crohn support group of San Diego mm-hmm. and the celiac group of San Diego. So I had, like, six, seven groups, and I would just do a talk once a month with one of them and always get four or five new patients from doing that, and it didn't cost anything. And... It was just kind of a way to educate people, purely educational talks, right? No sales or marketing within the talks, just purely mm-hmm. educational about a subject of interest to those patients. Well, all right, let me ask you one more question, and then, and then we'll move on to, or in this arena, and then we'll move on to some, some of your thoughts around patient care. Do you, like, what do you think about coupons? I mean, so what if you're at one of these talks and you offer some sort of a discount coupon or you have that on your site? I mean, is there, is there any value to that? Oh, absolutely. You just have that has to be part of your business plan. Many, many times we see doctors offer discounts or coupons or some kind of concierge service or yearly fee, and they haven't thought out the financial ramifications of it, you know. Mm. Um, but you can do simple things like free 15-minute consultation, something like that, where it's very clear how much of your time it's going to take and how much of a potential loss of revenue you're going to have. And we have... Um, One of the practitioners in my training program now, this fellow Justin, he just told me this a few weeks ago. He converts like almost 90% of his 15-minute consult people that are free Mm -hmm. convert into a paid patient right away. So if you have the system set up properly and you're screening people, you know, and you're having some way of qualifying people who sign up for that, not just letting it be anyone who's on the Internet, that can be super successful because a lot of times patients just need that last confirmation. You know, they've seen your YouTube videos, they checked out your website, their friend told you you're good, and that last in-person meeting is just enough for them to go, oh, okay, I I want to do this now. Right, right. We offered at one of the clinics I was, I worked at when I was in my residency and my postdoctorate, we actually offered a a mini lab, and people would come in and discuss their results, and it was, you know, it had a really good price point with it, for it, and and so it didn't cost the clinic much to do. Um, mm-hmm. 
But th- that was incredibly effective in my observation. You know, people would yeah, be people really... always want a deal, you know. But yeah. you, you have to be a little careful because you don't want to always get patients who are looking for bargains because they yes. oftentimes turn out to be patients that aren't so great for the long term. Uh, yep. That's so it's kind of a balance there, I think. You don't want to get people who are just discount shopper people. Right. Um, it's more you want to qualify it. That's why I'm saying Justin has a way of making sure that those free 15 minutes go to people who are, you know, screened in some way so he knows that it's very likely that they'll continue on. They're not just trying to get 15 minutes of advice and then go do their own thing. They just are wanting to make sure this is a good first step for them. Okay, so you've got this patient in your practice. You're bringing them in. You've got your, your marketing game happening. And, you know, what... So at that first visit, where you're where you're really trying to engage the patient in what you have to offer, um, how do you do that? Like, what kind of information does the doctor need? Um, you know, what what is what does that dialogue look like uh, to establish that that connection and to get the patient excited about this wellness journey? Yeah. So you know, it took me about ten or twelve years. And maybe five, six thousand patients to figure out what I'm about to say. <laughs> this is not necessarily intuitively obvious, but I actually teach this as a subject in my practice management class, okay? Because <laughs> it's like super important. And I call it, for lack of a better term, I just made up a term, I call it the condition description technique. But what it means is that the patient's coming in with a condition, let's say Hashimoto's, just to make it easy, and you have to somehow describe to them how functional medicine, which is this huge world of complexity that we all understand, systems-oriented, how that whole huge complex world is directly related to their specific condition, and you have about five or ten minutes to do that. So the art of that skill is understanding what the patient's viewpoint is. So let's say they have Hashimoto's and they're uh, tired all the time and they're overweight. Mm-hmm. You know, that you take that information and you describe to them how functional medicine specifically can address their top concerns. And once they see how effective your program can be, like I'll give you like a few second example. Yeah. Um, let's say it's Hashimoto's. You would say, you know, we frequently see Hashimoto's strongly related to gluten and to other chronic GI issues in addition to inflammatory immune destroying foods, you know, there can be pathogens in your gut. I really think we should do this testing that looks at foods and pathogens in your gut so we can address your Hashimoto's more deeply. Um, Autoimmune cases in general we find often involve liver detox pathways. Not always, but we often see there's problems with the liver being able to get rid of toxins and antibody-antigen complexes. I really think we should test um, your liver pathways and run this organic acids profile. Uh, we almost always see energy deficits. I know you're tired, kind of makes sense with Hashimoto's. So obviously in addition to the thyroid workup, we may want to look at adrenal function, at uh, uh, mitochondrial energy production, might want to run some cortisol levels, and you know, um, an organic acids test to look at the mitochondria. So you know, in a couple of minutes, you kind of describe to them how your hormone or GI or organic acids testing is specifically related just to their condition. You don't try to describe the whole thing because that's overwhelming and they won't care. Yes. You just try to describe what you're doing, your systems biology, your systems you know, approach, only as it relates to their top complaints. Mm-hmm. And that sells people immediately because then they'll walk out of your office, go to the front desk and say, wow, I want to test my cortisol for sure, the foods and the pathogens, what's that organic acid thing? Give, give it to me, give it to me. Because they see the tests as directly addressing their problem, not as a general solution for all problems, which we know it is, right? Functional medicine can solve anything from toenail fungus to heartburn, but we just want to focus that patient on how we're addressing their top concerns with the labs. Right. And once I perfected that ability, I mean, I could really sell a whole series of labs to to just about anyone, but the, the, the way I describe the value of the tests is different. And that patient has to see that there's a perceived value right. to them yes. personally. Not that you're excited about it as a doctor, but that they're excited about it because they see the value to them. Yes, absolutely. Well, and, you know, I think one of, so one of the things that I do, because I'm practicing within the, you know, the Institute for Functional Medicine's model that, you know, after I finish my intake, 
this isn't this is not in 15 minutes but you know I'll do I'll I'll, I'll walk them through a timeline sort of like the sequence events that I've observed, you know, that I've gotten in their history that, that influenced wh why they are where they are today. And so I'm express I, I, I've heard them, I'm connecting the dots through the course of their life, and then I walk them through uh, how we're going to investigate and how we're going to begin to reverse it. So this isn't a full intake, and my first full office visit is, is 90 minutes or, or longer. Um, but that final segment of articulating what's going on with them, hearing them, understanding, and then walking them through that the journey to wellness, you know, giving them a thumbnail on what we need to do. It's true, Dan. It's incredibly inspiring. Uh, and, and indeed, you know, in my practice too, patients are excited about the labs because they want to get to know themselves. You know, I often say we're going to look under the quote, you know, biochemical hood or the metabolic hood and see what's really going on. And uh, it's, it's very, it is, it's quite inspiring. And so you, these are specialty tests a lot of times. I mean, I certainly run insurance cover testing and I actually do as much of that as I possibly can. So there's, you know, usually no out-of-pocket expense to patients if they've got insurance for those. But I'm also running, as you say, organic acids or I'm doing a, you know, a, a, a comprehensive urine hormone or I'm looking at some specialty food sensitivity panels or, um, you know, adrenal and so forth. So how do you, um, how do you think about pricing with that? And, um, you know, get, I mean, I know, I guess you get patients enrolled because you've given them, you know, you've, you've talked to them about how you're going to unlock their health issues. Um, and then how do, you, how do you get them on board with the pricing, and how do you think about pricing? Well, the, the, this is a hard one. So let's go back to, like, you know, how doctors feel about money is really the problem here, you know. Mm -hmm. And we all... You know, I grew up in Berkeley, California. My dad was a professor. When my um, sister decided to go to law school, my dad was like, okay, that's great, but I'm not paying. You go get a Ph.D. in history like I wanted you to, fine. You know, like my, my family was like anti-corporate, anti-business to an insane degree. You can imagine a bunch of people in Berkeley in the 60s yeah, yeah. who were academicians, right? So I grew up with this whole money is bad. Really the root of all evil is corporate greed and and, you know, the idea of profitability was 100% a negative concept. Okay, so, but let's look at the situation that we're in. And I see this in different degrees in most doctors. They feel a little guilty about making money from people who are suffering, which is understandable. Because in a normal culture, as a healer, we wouldn't have to be running a small business. We'd have a hut somewhere with some herbs and roots, and people would bring in a chicken, and we would heal them, and then we'd get the chicken, right? So, but we're in a, in a culture where we have to do this exchange through money. It's just the way that it works. And if we devalue our services or the lab costs or the supplement costs, then the whole concept falls apart for a couple different reasons. One is that the doctor's business won't be profitable, so then they're going to end up overworking too many hours of work. Yes. They're going to burn out do yes. that all the time because they're not charging enough. And then the second thing that happens is that if the patient thinks that they're getting a discount or it's, you know, if the patient doesn't see the value of the testing and the supplements yes. and the value of the doctor's time, then you're missing out on the most important part of the healing process, which is that belief that this is going to work, whether you want to call that placebo or you want to call it, you know, the energy of healing or spiritual healing or whatever that is, where people believe in you as a healer and doctor, and that is, as we all know, a large part of why people get better. Um, so the, and in fact, that's, in my mind, in some ways, that's the main reason why patients get better, because they uh, get a sense that they can get better from us, we're like leading them in that direction. The labs are just kind of instructional for a lot of different reasons. So the more you, I mean, what I'm trying to say is the more you charge within reason, the better. You don't want to gouge people, that's just like socially inappropriate, but, you know, we charge you know, full price for my time. I charge, uh, you know, 400 plus an hour. We don't ever discount supplements. People have to pay a fair amount for the special supplements that we carry. And, you know, the lab testing itself is a relatively minor fee because they don't usually only have to pay the, all the labs, uh, for all the specialty labs up front once. And obviously if their parasitology workup comes back clean, we're not going to retest them over and over necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they're not ordering new labs every month, but there is this initial upfront cost of the tests 
Uh, but, you know, if you looked at my clinic and my average patient who's doing comprehensive hormones, all the GI workups, and organic acids profile, it's around 1000 bucks. Mm-hmm. I can't even buy new tires for my Audi for that much. And certainly, even if someone's not driving an Audi, if someone's driving like a 19, you know, 90 Corolla around, even if the transmission failed, it's a thousand, two thousand dollars, right? Any kind of significant car repair is in the range that we're talking about. So, in terms of our culture, it's not a lot of money, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. But we as doctors often see it as this, ooh, you kind of cringe from the idea of it being so expensive. Um, and I think that. Once the practitioners are clear on the value of what they're delivering, um, then it really makes a difference. And, you know, one of my teachers said this a long time ago, this guy named Paul, um, and this really completely changed my view of what I charge people. He said, Dan, why don't you charge people for the end result and have them pay when that result is achieved? So, for example, fertility patient comes in. I would say, okay, Jane, sign this contract. Everything is free. But if you get pregnant and have a baby, what's that worth to you? What's, what's that dollar amount worth to you? I mean, how much would she put down? Yes. Not five or $6,000, which is the actual cost of my services and all the supplements. She'd yes. probably put down what's a fertility treatment cost, thirty or 40000 Yeah, that's right. So if we kind of see the value or like if someone has chronic fatigue, you know, what's the value of not having that anymore? Yes. I think once you look at it that way, you realize what we're delivering, then you realize that we're, you know, even charging our regular fees and all the regular lab and supplement fees is very, very reasonable. Yes. It's far under the value that we're delivering. That's right. That's absolutely right. And people are coming to us either because they've been down many paths before often um, and they've, you know, they've exhausted their resources, you know, time and time again. Um, very, that's, that's extremely true. So I was going to talk to you about that. So this investment, you know, just sort of the psychology of all of this from the patient's uh, point of view, when they get this, it's A, they're, um, they're fully invested in the process. Um, and, and I think that there's some, you know, there's, well, there's definitely some gratitude for finally having a clinician sitting in front of them with clear direction. Um, so let me just ask you now, what about folks who decide they want to stay in the insurance model uh, and accept health insurance in their practice? Any, any comments for those clinicians? Do you work with those clinicians? You know, there is a very, very few in that category. And, you know, within my training program, I try to connect them to one another because they're going to have their own pretty unique challenges, especially if they want to stay 100% insurance. Now, there's a, most of the people that we're working with are either trying to transist to all cash or are trying to build a cash practice a couple days a week that's going to run in parallel with their insurance-based practice. My general experience is that if, if the person is already, if the person, if the doctor is in a place where they want to do 100% insurance, that we try to coax them out of that position and say, why don't we just do Fridays cash, and let's just see how that goes for a year or two, mm-hmm. and gradually over time, every example I've ever had, um, once they see how much easier it is and how much less work it is and how much better their patient results are, yeah. they'll gradually kind of shift over and, you know, typically end up maybe 50% cash, 50%. Um, insurance, you know, uh, but we don't get a lot of doctors that it's just very hard to execute this model in an insurance climate without the physician burning out. Yes. Not that the patients aren't going to get great services because they can, but the amount of time that the doctor has to put in is, is not sustainable or realistic. Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, and I think there, I mean, definitely in my experience, having a cash-based practice the continuum of of an individual's readiness to change. I mean, they move through that once they make that financial investment. You know, they're much more ready to jump in and do what they need to do. Um, yeah, and there, I think there's two other kind of corollaries to that. One is that there are there is a surplus right now in America of patients who want to find doctors to do this with and want to pay cash. 
So there's no, there's no shortage of people that want to do cash. So that's number one. So then the only reason that you would be left wanting to do insurance would be because you want the service, these services to be available to people who can't afford them mm-hmm. because it's expensive. And it, you know, even though maybe it's only $1,000 for labs, a lot of people don't have $1,000 and never will. So if you're of the mindset that you need to stick with insurance because there's not enough cash patients out there, I would dispel that completely because there's more patients than any of us can handle. You know, I have a two- or three-month waiting list. There's more people out there than, than we can handle. Um, and if you want to stay with insurance so that it's more affordable, I would strongly suggest to you all the smart doctors do it the exact same way. They set up a cash practice, and then they designate a certain percent of their practice for people that can't afford their services, 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%, whatever you want it to be, and then you have certain days of the week or certain numbers of patients that you'll take on where you, um, you know, are, are, are making it more financial. You're, you're taking on people who can't afford the full services and figuring out a way to, uh, you can't necessarily discount fees or discriminate, but figure out a way to put them through your clinic with, in a more affordable way. Mm-hmm. So you can still work with people who are underprivileged and can't afford our care, but I think it's better to control that and to leave the insurance companies out of it. Mm-hmm. Yep, amen. And I have found, because I do that in my practice as well, and I've found uh, certain lab lab companies and even supplement companies can uh, can assist us in, in, in those cases. Uh, all right, so going back to that, that initial patient visit, so you, you've gotten them excited and, you know, they're on board with the process. What, uh, what kinds of issues uh, might we want to identify early in the process with the patient? What, what special issues may, might they be facing that we want to look at early? From the business side or from clinical side? Oh, I'm sorry. We're hopping back into clinical. On the clinical side. Um, well, I think, you know, I think about it. Well, we can maybe I could combine the answer to that one and try to throw in some business concepts too because I think in a way they're the same. My favorite example of this is my dentist. Dr. Hunao is my dentist. I've been seeing him since I was like eight, six or seven years old. He <laughs> told his practice to Dr. Merhardi. I, I, I mean, I love her. She's like my mom. I mean, I'm like probably going to see her as a dentist until the day I die. And, you know, one of the things their office does really well, and they have since I was a little kid, is they remind me to follow up and follow through. So if I don't get my teeth cleaning scheduled, you know, I'll kind of sneak out of there. I schedule the teeth cleaning, but then I know I'm going to cancel it, and then I don't reschedule it. And they have a follow-up system, so they start texting me, hey, you missed, you know, you haven't had your six-month cleaning. You better come in. And I don't look at those follow-ups as, like, marketing or sales, which is right. really what it is. I just, look, I just think fondly about Dr. Mahari, and I think, oh, I haven't seen her in a while. Yeah, my teeth really need a cleaning. I better go in, right? So, so one of the, I think, the the most common, most important way that we see clinicians fall apart is not on the startup, because most of us are pretty good that first couple weeks or months or two, and we're good with people, we enjoy our job, patients get that, but the follow-up that we see in practices is like from non-existent to horrible, meaning that, you know, are you sending out every six-month reminders to every patient to do a follow-up, to talk with you, to tune up their diet, to make sure they're exercising, to make sure their meditation practice that you recommend is on track. Are you doing follow-ups even in the beginning, right, when you sell that first supplement program to them? You need to follow up a week or so before you know those supplements are going to run out to make sure that they reorder and they stay on track. So I think the lack of follow-up is almost universal in every practice that we analyze, Mm -hmm. and that leads to two big problems. One is it leads to poor patient outcomes, because, as you know, you can't just give somebody 30 days of a bunch of vitamins and their whole world is going to change. You know, they need to take supplements and do these diet and lifestyle changes over long periods of time, you know, months or years, in order to get the results that we're all looking for. And so we don't get the best clinical results without the good follow-up. And, of course, the business model falls apart as well because you're losing out on a majority of your potential sales by selling every new patient a month or two worth of services and labs and products but not capitalizing on the ongoing sales, which is where the vast majority of the profit for the business comes from. And it's the exact same thing with Mahadi. I don't, I don't think less of her as a dentist or as a person because she does great follow-up. And, again, as a patient, I don't even perceive it as sales and marketing, which is exactly what it is. I right. see it as her doing me a favor to keep me on track with my dental health. And in functional medicine, patients perceive this the same way. They're like, wow, Kalish's office emails me 
every six months. And it's not like he's stalking me. He cares in, you know, about my diet and whether I'm staying on the supplements. Is the program working? So follow-up is really, I think, uh, the biggest uh, breakdown point that we see. What about, so speaking of follow-up, and you're right, that's definitely something we're always working on here in my office. Um, I lean, I don't have a nutrition or, excuse me, a health coach in my practice, although I've, I've certainly thought about bringing health coaches on. Um, especially with the, there's a new program out there designing folks just for functional medicine clinics, but I do have an amazing nutrition team and I, um, I've got five, I've got two nutritionists and three nutrition interns and I really lean heavily on those folks for follow-up and, and, uh, guiding people to stay on the various therapeutic diets that I've prescribed. Do you recommend those? I'm sure you're recommending support staff. What kind of support staff are you recommending for, um, for clinic? Maybe, and actually, you know, Dan, answer this specifically for the new doctor, um, starting out or transitioning in. So for brand new doctors starting, it's best to do the nutritional follow-up yourself Mm -hmm. for a couple reasons. One is because you're trying to fill up your schedule still. You're not booked out for two months. Yep. Okay, so you want to have that extra time. The other is, it's probably more important than that, that's like the business perspective. The clinical part of it is that you, don't, you want to create your own nutritional coaching, your own follow-up systems based on things like what IFM teaches, based on things like what I teach in my practice management courses. You want to take, but you, you can't just cookie-cutter it. You have to adjust it to your personality and how you want to do things. And so it's easier if you do that yourself while you're working with patients who are paying you. So you're basically getting paid an hourly rate to develop the system that you want. Once you've perfected it, and that's going to take at least three months, probably more like six months or a year for most people, once you've perfected that system, then you can bring on a nutritionist and say, hey, here's my system on week two, I do this. On week three, I do this. Here's the scripts. Here's the handouts. Here's what I want to see happen. And you have then some consistency in uh, creating the patient experience that you're trying to create. And so I think for those two reasons, it's better to take that on yourself. And I did this for probably too long. I did all my nutritional coaching, oh, gosh, at least for five or six years. Mm -hmm. And then I hired a nutritionist, and I set up a system where – I have a little worksheet, and I'll check off on the worksheet the things I want the nutritionist to focus on, mm-hmm. you know, so that we're on the same page and the patient feels like we're communicating, but then they go to the nutritionist for the actual work. And I, I made that transition when I got to the point in my practice where I was just so busy that I couldn't handle, I didn't have time in a week to do the follow-up, right? There was yes. nothing in my schedule. And honestly, I was a little bored about talking about gluten. You know, how many thousands of times can you give that talk? And I gave it many thousands of times, and I was like, okay, I think I can hand this off to someone else now. <laughs> right. It is important to really know the ins and outs of the therapeutic diet and, and to go through that experience. But I'll tell you what, I was uh, very excited to have the support of a, of a nutrition team. Um, all right. So big, 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 big question from patients. When am I going to feel better? How do you mm-hmm. respond? Well, I have a, let's see, there's a, there's a method to this. So I'd say if we're getting the lifestyle changes implemented, if they're stopping caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, no, let's just say if they're stopping, let's say they're stopping all the alcohol and caffeine and they're doing a gluten-free, sugar-free diet, for the next 30 days, you can kind of guarantee that. And if they're starting in on their supplement protocols, and I see the labs and I can tell, you know, pretty much how well that's going to work, mm-hmm. then I'll give them my standard wrap, which is that, you know, you should start to feel better in three or four weeks. 80% of this is going to come about because of the lifestyle changes, because you're going to stop alcohol and caffeine, and we've got this amazing diet you're going to start following, and all these supplements. 20 plus percent of this is completely reliant upon the supplements. Assuming you do the diet and lifestyle changes perfectly. Mm-hmm. If you cheat on the diet and lifestyle and it takes a while for you to implement it, it may be that, you know, your benefit is only 50% from the lifestyle and then the supplements have to step in for that other 50% and it's obviously going to go slower. So I want to throw it back at them and let them know that the faster they make the lifestyle changes, the faster this is going to go, that the supplements are critical, but they can't get away with poor, no lifestyle change and tons of supplements. That's not the model. 
Right. And that's, of course, what people try to do, right? Everybody wants to stay on the alcohol and caffeine and just take enough supplements that they feel better. So I try to set it up in that way. And then if they're three or four weeks into the program and they're not feeling better, then I know either the lifestyle changes aren't being initiated or that I didn't design the supplement program properly, I may need to adjust things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of my standard answer, but I really want to make the... Because you and I know that uh, what was like in the study I did with the Mayo Clinic, right? This was the most dramatic example of this, because we had 25 women all doing the exact same thing. And in the first six weeks of the study, we hadn't gotten the lab results back yet, and no one was on any supplements. And I saw the most dramatic clinical changes of my career in this group of 20-plus women only with lifestyle changes, not a single supplement of any type. And that just reinforced the concept, right, that we, all, we always know this and say it, but sometimes we kind of forget that it's really not supplement-driven what we're doing. Um, and so I try to instill that in patients as much as I can, and then if things aren't going well, we try to problem-solve about how we can improve the lifestyle factors. Now, then I always undersell things, and I also, when we're looking at you know, pro, uh, supplement program design, mm-hmm. I'm always looking for what's the number one thing you want to have go away. Yes. And it's always like, uh, there's like three things, right, that everyone says. I don't want to be tired anymore. I want to lose weight. And I don't know what the other one is. Maybe I'm depressed or anxious or I have low sex drive or something like that. So I also try to target the initial supplement protocols to have a really strong symptomatic relief component. Yes. You know? Yes. And I oftentimes target, and this is sort of, um, in my own mind, controversial, but I oftentimes target the underlying cause of their problem to be dealt with in month two or three or four. Let's say their main problem is heavy metal toxicity or their main problem is giardia. You know, I often will hold off on that treatment for the giardia or, or the heavy metals until we've built up their reserve and they're feeling a bit better from the mitochondrial energy program, from the adrenal or thyroid program. So I do try to skew the programs in that first month or two towards feel-good supplements that are symptomatic relieving so that they have a sense of enthusiasm and buoyancy about the overall work that we're doing. And then we hit treat the giardia, treat the heavy metals, which, as you know, oftentimes leads to people, you know, slipping back in terms of increased symptoms or side effects, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. I do. I mean, I work with a lot of allergy patients, and, you know, if I've got somebody with head-to-toe hives and they're itching so profusely they can't sleep at night we have to deal with that first you know we have to we have to get them some sleep be it you know some some very high dose uh, botanical antihistamines or using a pharmaceutical antihistamine we just simply have to do that if we put them on an elimination diet of course we have you know we need to do that for the underlying issue and correct the immune imbalance and so forth but they need to be sleeping and ideally they're sleeping that night <laughs> so there's certainly it's important to consider palliation and arguably you know when we're using functional medicine um, palliation is often has its tentacles in root cause as well um, you know if we use botanical antihistamines they're going to offer some sort of balancing effect potentially um, to the immune response. So I hear you. It makes, it makes total sense. Um, what about, I, you know, I could pick your brain all day. We've got so much to cover, but I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions. Um, how many supplements do you think about prescribing, you know, on the, you know, at, at the start of the program and, and how long do you expect people to be on them? Okay. This I screwed this one up for a long time. So when I was learning functional medicine 25 years ago, I watched what my teachers did, and I mimicked them. And I, w- I would routinely see patients in, in the clinics where I was being trained on whew, 15 to 35 different products taken at six or eight times of the day. Mm. Um, in the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of pills category, you know, and, and I, I wasn't really processing things. I was just like, okay, this is functional medicine. But, you know, maybe that person had a tumor in their throat the size of a grapefruit, you know, or maybe that person had, you know, really severe autoimmune disease. And, they're, you know, the guys that trained me were just so 
their practices were full of such sick people mm-hmm. that I learned this really extreme version of functional medicine where there was no time to mess around and to do anything but a full program in every sense of the word. Yes. And so I mimicked that for a long time. And then I woke up one day and I realized, oh, you know what? I don't really have any cancer patients. These people aren't that sick. And they're all complaining about having to take so many pills and supplements and stuff. And I wonder what the minimum amount I could do to get away with would be. Mm-hmm. And so I went on a journey for many years to try to figure that out. And I ended up with number nine. So if you look at my health plans, there's only nine slots. And if I'm going to go above nine supplements, then I have to get out another sheet of paper and start thinking about why I'm even doing that. Mm-hmm. And I found that the number nine, and I'd say my average patient's on somewhere probably between six and nine supplements, unless they're st- extremely sick, in which case the number might go up, but not for very long. And, and then what I try to do now, and I think the art of minimizing the number of products you give is to sequence things properly so that you're delivering results at each phase of the treatment, but you're not trying to do it all at the same time. Right. And so, I mean, I have a really specific way I teach that, and I do that in my own practice, and I don't think it's important to necessarily mimic what I do other than conceptually so that you have a concept of program design and you're, you're breaking each one of these programs, which is maybe six to nine different supplements, into the priority list that you want and then implementing them. And then maybe sometimes there's some overlap, you know, um, between programs, but not for very long. Now, the sicker the patient gets, the more they're willing to take more products. But my practice now, and what I really try to encourage doctors to start with, is a lighter weight version of functional medicine. You know, I think we should learn to do this work on easier patients, not on the really hard ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's safer for the patient if you learn on easier patients, uh, mm-hmm. less likely to cause a problem. And, and it's easier for the doctor to get up to speed and to learn how these things work. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I find with all the great doctors that trained me had practices that attracted the sickest people in the world, literally. Yes. And that, that's a hard place to start. Um, and so I, I really suggest people, like we are talking about niches earlier, go for an easy niche. Like how about female hormone imbalances or um, right. Hashimoto's is a great one. Or you know, pick a niche where people are still working, they're not in and out of the hospital all the time, and, and you can, they don't have hives all over their entire body. Maybe they just have hives every month, you know, so, so that you're not thrown into the deep end of the pool and trying to learn on the hardest people. Um, and that, that's one thing I feel really strongly about because it burns doctors out and they get frustrated. They think it's not working because they don't have the skills to address these really difficult patients yet. Um, so start, you know, starting on the easier side. So, and the, most of the people in the training programs that I run, they're working on the, they're working around the nine to ten supplement picture as well. And then another thing I always try to emphasize is the better we do our job, the faster that the person will get off the supplements. Mm. And you know, these are supplements, not permanents. Is my joke. I always tell patients, it's supplementary to what? <laughs> to your diet, to your meditation, you know. And we're using the supplements to boost you up enough, quickly enough, and to repair a lot of things that were damaged, but ultimately the treatment's going to segue over to, um, you know, continuation of the meditation, the exercise, the diet, and those kinds of things. Yeah, thanks for mentioning meditation. I know you've got that as a component, you know, the mind-body piece and exercise as well. I mean, you have a full, a full approach, um, and we haven't really touched on that today. We've been touching more nuts and bolts practice building here, but yes, you know, we need all of yeah, them. I meditate at least two hours every day. I wake right. up, basically, I wake up at 4 in the morning. I usually meditate until around 7, 7.30. I did this morning. And um, to me, that is the most important part of functional medicine. You know, when I look at all the great functional medicine doctors, and you and I are about the same age, I think, or same generation, you know, you can think about all our teachers. Mm-hmm. They all, every man and woman I can think of, primarily had a spiritual perspective on healing. Now, they may have also been lab directors and PhDs in chemistry and, you know, naturopaths or chiropractors or medical doctors, whatever their licensing was, but they all shared a deep belief that healing is primarily a spiritual event Mm. and that as practitioners, we cannot access the most powerful tool unless we're meditating ourselves. Forget about your patients. Getting your patients to meditate is, is inconsequential if you're not doing it, right? 
And so I do feel like that's the underlying basis of functional medicine, even though my teachers never talked about it a lot, certainly not in public. I just think it's the subtext under which we work. Right. That's a great note to end on. I, um, I was just going to ask you for final words of wisdom, but I think that's really lovely. Um, Dan, just thank you so much for spending this hour with me. You've uh, really provided such valuable information. Uh, it's been inspiring to listen to you, and I know clinicians who check out this podcast will be, um, you know, just well-guided. And we'll put contact information on here for finding Dan um, and finding his site and, and a little bit more about his work. Um, thanks again, Dr. Kalish. Appreciate it very much. Thank you.